What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to Die Hard on a Blank, the podcast where we explore the influence of Die Hard on action cinema, one action movie at a time. I'm Philip Cawthorn, and with me as always is Liam Billingham, and today's film is Crimson Tide. It's Die Hard on a Nuclear Submarine. Not to be confused with the submarine from The Hunt for Red October, this is a nuclear submarine from the film Crimson Tide. Wasn't that also a nuclear submarine? Was it a nuclear? I don't remember anymore, but I feel like the nuclear is the important part. <laughs> yeah, I put part. that in there to make it seem like it was different, but it's actually the same. It's actually the same. But look, yeah. there's there can be no, there can be as many good submarine movies as well, possible. Well, the two films are in conversation, and so right. it's something that we, we will talk about. As you are to helicopters, I am to submarines. You so love I'm very, a sub. very excited to talk you about this movie. You love a good sub. I love a sub and both both the sandwich and the uh and the ship. Um and I'm particularly excited because we have a great guest, maybe the perfect guest in my opinion to talk about this movie. Isaac Butler. Hi, Isaac. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, hey, Liam. It's wonderful to be here. Hello, 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 hello. Hello, Phil. Uh, fun fact about me, I have an irrational fear of dying in the bottom of the ocean uh, <laughs> in a submersible that is collapsing or has sprung a leak, uh, a pinprick thing. So um, this is a very tense uh, uh, movie for me, even beyond the threat of nuclear winter coming and wiping out all life on earth that hangs over the film. It's funny you say that because when my wife watched it with me, she said at the end of it, her review was, this film should be called Anxiety Tide. <laughs> Anxiety Tide, yeah. Yes, exactly, exactly. But uh, there's no college football team named the Anxiety Tide, so it, it just wouldn't really work. Well, there should be, there should be. That would um, be a weird football team name, I'm just gonna say. Um, so look, uh, Isaac and I weirdly, I, Isaac, I wonder if you remember this, but we go weirdly way back uh, in 20, 2004, I think, so Clay ago. McLeod Chapman and I um, uh, were chatting about the play Pterodactyls, and he was like, you have to talk to Isaac Butler oh, yeah, yeah. about it, because he just directed it, and I believe we emailed about it for a while, and then flash forward many years, we reconnected on Twitter, one of the only, X, excuse me, now X, Twitter then, now X. One of the only good things about that platform is being able to keep in touch with 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 people who have who write and do cool things. So I am going to very quickly read Isaac's bio so you all understand why he is the perfect guest. 
to talk about Crimson Tide. Isaac Butler is the author of The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act, which won the National Book Critics Circle Award for Nonfiction in 2022. He is also the co-author of The World Only Spins Forward, The Ascent of Angels in America, which was a Stonewall honor book. His work as a stage director has been seen on stages all over the country, and he currently co-hosts the Slate podcast Working, an interview show focused on the creative process. Thanks again for being here, Isaac. Um, the method, I was saying this before we started recording, uh, when you told me about it uh, years ago, that it was coming out, I was very excited. I bought a copy, and it is in some ways my favorite book of the last 10 years. Incredible, incredible. Thank you so much. Uh, it's the kind of thing that you're like, wow, I didn't know I wanted this, and now I have it. And and I was saying to Phil before we started recording, earlier this year, we had Nick DeSemelian on the podcast, and he wrote a book called The Last Action Heroes, which if there are two books that feel like represent what we love about talking about these movies. It's that book and The Method. Amazing. Both these extraordinary explorations of, of acting. And, and is it fair to say that The Method is kind of like the biography of the acting method that yeah, so many yes. people misunderstand. That's totally how I thought about it was, you know, because it spans two continents and a hundred years and there's dozens of characters, you know, the way to organize what would stay in the book and what would get cut from the book and how the plot of the book would unfold and everything like that was to kind of frame it as a biography, but instead of a person as the protagonist, an idea is the protagonist. So you, you know, you begin with that idea as parents and then you get to watch the idea get born and then you get to watch it, you know, struggle and suffer and all those sorts of things as it learns, you know, what it wants to be. And then you get to watch it flourish and then you get to kind of watch it decline and maybe die. And so, um, that was a really fun way for me to structure it. And, you know, when we, when it came time to cut the 30,000 words that my editor wanted to cut from it and, <laughs> and, and figure out, you know, some revision stuff, it was really helpful to keep that sort of concept in the back of my head. Right. It's like sort of the thesis that guides the editing process. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. I think it's really important to set rules for yourself. I mean, it's also important to know that you made those rules up and you can break them if you need to, right. but it's really important to set rules for yourself and, and to, to kind of, uh, try to obey them and see how those constraints can kind of uh, uh, create or cause, you know, the creative spark to, to, to flourish, which is, I think, actually uh, somewhat coincidentally part of what's going on with the, the theme of this podcast. Right. It's like if we constrain an action movie geographically and temporally, especially with this movie temporally, because the second half of it takes place in real time over the course of an hour. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, or at least feels like it's real time. I don't know if it's actually real time or not, but it feels like feels it. close. Feels um, close. Uh, you know, w what do you have to do with the story? What new ideas for telling a story come out of that? Can you tell us briefly, like, what was the genesis for writing the book? I feel like I've read interviews, but I don't mm -hmm. know if I've I've seen that specific thing come up. Well, there's a bunch of 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 different. You know, genesis, genocide, genisodes, uh, gen genopods. I don't know. Um, there's a there's a bunch of them. Um, uh, and the most, you know, prosaic one is my editor, uh, Ben Hyman, who edited The World Only Spins Forward, which I co-wrote with Dan Coyce. You know, he and I were out to lunch. He said, do you have another book idea? And I had three other book ideas. And he said, uh, I like this method one. 
you know, mm. why don't you pursue that? And then I did some more research to see if it really was worth writing a book about and then got hooked on it because, you know, like, and this gets to the more interesting answer probably is, you know, having grown up in the theater and been an actor and then a director and, you know, followed the discourse trademark. Um, I, I do feel like the term, the method is all over the place and, mm -hmm. but no one knows what it means. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not even sure I knew what it meant when I started out writing this book. And so I was kind of curious about, well, how did this group of ideas come, come out and how did they shape our pop culture so profoundly? Uh, but in such a way that no one knows what they are. That was a really mm -hmm. interesting question to me. And then though as a nonfiction writer and a cultural historian and critic, I'm always interested in, you know, what's going to be a good story because I actually, I'm mostly a novel reader. You know, mm -hmm. I, I am looking for the good narrative that's going to pull the reader through the whole book. Cause it's, it's a mm -hmm. lot. And, uh, when I started researching it and I discovered that every single person in this story is batshit crazy, uh, uh, and that there's a lot of like decades long feuds in it and mm -hmm. you know escaping uh, uh the communists in russia and you know a war and blah 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 blah. i was like well this is gonna be great like this is gonna mm -hmm. this is this is gonna be great because uh the story's so much fun and i can you can get away with a lot in terms of wanting to inform people and teach them and and bring them ideas if you can wrap it in a story that's entertaining well, it's a great, it's an extraordinary book, and it's it's an extraordinary sort of framing device to talk about this movie. Which, um, what's your experience with this movie? Have you have you like a, I watched this movie twenty five times in the nineties, thirty times? Are you uh, sort of a, a fan in that way? Oh, that's incredible! Because I think when we were talking, uh, one of us suggests. I think I suggested this movie, maybe, or like you, you sent me a I list of you ones you were considering. Yeah, yeah, I've only seen it three times. That's that's a okay. uh, I am uh, uh, I saw it on VHS, you know, when it first came to, to video, uh, I probably rented it from Hollywood video where I would eventually work uh, in Washington, DC. You know, I've watched it again at some point on TV in the aughts or whatever. And I watched it to prep for this podcast, but I remember it really vividly. It's a movie that's really stuck with me. And sometimes when a movie really sticks with me, I actually avoid rewatching it because there's some like my memories of it. I try to be mm -hmm. protective of them in this weird way. I get kind of almost religious about it or something. I don't know. And then there's other mm -hmm. movies, you know, I've watched a billion times like the Muppet movie or whatever. Um, and uh, that was actually kind of helpful with this one for reasons we'll get into later, because there were some things that I actually misremembered about it mm -hmm. uh, uh, and being able to revisit and be like, oh, I thought it was this and that and blah, 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 blah. But there's, you know, of course you remember all the kind of um you know, the, the, you remember kind of the great acting off moments of it. Um, uh, and you remember that it has two coups in rapid succession, you know, or <laughs> yeah, three, yeah. there's like three mutinies in seven minutes in this movie. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, uh, and you, you, you know, you remember the premise, you remember the Jack Russell Terrier peeing on the sub. I mean, there's a mm -hmm. lot of it. There's a lot of it. Uh, uh, that I, I remembered. I did not remember that Ryan Phillippe is in it for one and one third seconds. goldfish. Keeping an his, eye on those goldfish. Yeah, and exactly. looking after them. 
Yes, exactly. Ryan Phillippe is in it. Uh, I totally forgot that Steve Zahn, Steve the Zahn, great Steve yeah. Zahn, is in it. Um, uh, not for very long. He 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 dies pretty quickly. Um, uh, you know, but 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 yeah, no, it's it's a movie that's really stuck with me. And I think it and True Romance are very obviously Tony Scott's best movies. I mean, I don't really think there's. And any that was a question that I I had here. You know, which was is this is this Tony's best film? What do you think, Liam? On on, the, on that. Well, I I think this movie is about as close to, you know, before we were chatting about like what are the masterworks of this genre in the yeah. 90s and it's, you know, that's always very debatable. I think The Fugitive is up there. I think, you know, uh Speed is up there. I certainly think this is in the top tier. Uh Tony is, you know, sadly very posthumously getting this reputation that he never got in life, which is um of of just a a master of 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 craft and and this is one of his more restrained works his restrained middle period works i think and i i think it is i just think it's astonishing and i i certainly i don't know if i can say it's his best movie but i don't think i can't think of others that are that much better films i, mean, I think it has the most weight is what i is how mm. i position but i would agree with eyes my personal favorite is tr is true romance but i could i could rip off like 10 of his films and say that, you know they're they're like masterpieces um we could talk about him all day and we will talk about him for uh for a while but what i really wanted to you know isaac down on you know i said this incredible book that you've written that takes you know uh the history of this acting technique from the Russian era with Stanislavski and then how it migrated to America and how the baton was picked up by Lee Strasberg and Meisner and, and so on and so forth. What I'm really interested to ask you about is with this film, which I would, would suggest essentially like is one of the first action films to put the elite acting and elite actors being front and center to the whole experience. Mm -hmm. It's almost a chamber piece drama. You know, um, the acting is the selling point of this film. The the almost the explosions and the battles are are somewhat they're they're there, but they're not the main. That's not why you're coming to this movie. Where does this film fit within the history of of acting in and the kind of acting, um, the the very specific uh, techniques that you talk about a lot in the book? Where does this film fit along that lineage, along that kind of historical line? That's that's a great question. I'm not only saying that to stall for time while I think of an answer. Uh, um, the, the, the big the big thing to say is that Gene Hackman is a method actor in the classical sense of the term, not in the Daniel Day Lewis sense of the term of building a bark canoe and, you know, going to live in the woods or whatever, which is not actually the method at all. We can get into that. But that's sort of what the end of my book is about. Uh, but in the classical sense of having studied the acting techniques and ideas of Lee Strasberg, uh, which uh, Lee Strasberg is in turn adapting it from the Russian uh, director, actor, textile empire baron, uh, and impresario and theorist, <laughs> Konstantin Stanislavsky. And so, you know, Gene Hackman moves to New York after uh, being Dustin Hoffman's roommate at the Pasadena Playhouse School, uh, where Dustin Hoffman was uh, voted least likely to succeed. You know, he moves to New York. He studies the method. He auditions many, many times for the actor's studio. Uh, he finally gets in due to the intervention of um, uh, Ellen Burstyn. Uh, he forms a, a longtime creative partnership with Arthur Penn, the director Arthur Penn, who is also a mover and shaker 
filmmaker at the actor studio. That is a relationship that that it's is is nurtured by the actor studio. Arthur Penn actually takes over the actor studio for several years after Lee Strasberg's death. You know, you can really see. Um, how the actor studio, which Lee Strasberg ran and was sort of the high temple of the method, you could see a kind of shaping film culture just through that relationship, right? I mean, I could name a bunch of other directors. John Frankenheimer was there. Mm-hmm. Martin Ritt was there. Uh, Sidney Lumet was there, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. But Arthur Penn and Gene Hackman worked together many times. And, and Penn was a Strasberg devotee, and so was Gene Hackman. And if you watch Hackman's Inside the Actor Studio interview, he actually mentions specific Strasberg techniques that he uses on set. The most important one, and it's the heart of Strasberg's technique, is the effective memory technique. And the effective memory technique is the use of memories of sensory details of intense emotional experiences you have had in order to trigger those emotions and use them for the character. Um, There's a bunch of other stuff that he does as well, but he actually specifically mentions in Inside the Actor Studio, you know, he doesn't like to talk a lot on set because he's trying to stay in the moment and have work on an effective memory and stuff like that. So that is the tradition he comes out of. Denzel Washington... Uh, is a a more classically trained actor. He comes out of a completely different tradition. There's not much evidence that he has a lot of method training. Um, And in fact, one of the things, you know, of course, I read all the reviews and 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 a couple of the 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 criticisms of the book I don't agree with. But one of them that I was like, you know, that's fair, is that I never talk about Denzel Washington in the book, and he's probably the greatest living screen actor, right? The reason why he's not talked about in the book is that he isn't a representative mm. of a particular acting school or style. Um, he's just a genius. I mean, he has technique, he has training, but he doesn't come out of a specific program in the way that someone like. Well, what's interesting Hackman about does. that. And I remember Tony's talking about this on behind the scenes of his other movies, particularly Man on Fire, is that Denzel does stay in character between takes, as I understand it, right? He talked about that, Mm. which which is difficult and not everyone could handle it, especially when you're playing a character like Creasy in Man on Fire, who is just a rageful, you know, broken, crazy, very intense character, very intense personality to be around. If someone is doing that, does that would would that fall within the method acting like categorization? It's good that you asked that because I want to be very clear here. The answer is no. the 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 dominant popular understanding of the method is that that answer is yes, that you're in mm. character all the time, and you know, uh, you're Robert De Niro on the set of Raging Bull, demanding that people refer to you as champ or you know whatever it is. Mm. Um, that's not how it works. In fact, Lee Strasberg. Very specifically, I have several quotes from him in the book where he's like, don't do that. <laughs> you know, he's like, that's not, you know, um, uh, uh, in Lee Strasberg's terms, uh, you know, the prep to do a take or to walk on stage or whatever is called taking a minute. It's called take a minute. Uh, and it's literally supposed to be 60 seconds long. Stanislavski would say you get into character and they'll walk from your dressing room to the stage. You know, it's supposed to be a rapid process. Mm-hmm. How it arises, though is connected to the method in that, you know, Strasberg actually didn't have basically any film experience until he acted in The Godfather Part II. Um, And so, but he was teaching a lot of actors who were working on film and they were trying to figure out how to make these techniques that they had learned work on a busy film set where the actor in some ways is the last priority, right? It's like the lighting set, the, you know, they've got your makeup on, they've, they've, they've got the cigarette down to the right length for the shot or whatever. Now action, and you have to be ready to go. And so one of the things that evolved as a kind of workaround was just staying in 
character all the time. So it does kind of grow out of it, but he was very open about feeling like that was a misunderstanding of the technique. And if you did the technique properly, you wouldn't need to do that. Um, Where this connects, though, to me is Crimson Tide, uh, a movie that I love that has extraordinary performances. I mean, it has a couple of not great performances, but it has many, many extraordinary performances. And it's filled with these kind of big acting off moments, right? Where it's like almost Mm. like a duel of of actors is part of a long tradition of old, particularly older male and younger male actors who are major actors of their generation facing off in a way in which the differences uh, that they have in the real world but in technique and style uh, mm. are reflected in the differences in their characters. One of my favorites of these is Otto Preminger's Anatomy of a Murder, in which you have Jimmy Stewart, who's an old studio star, and remember the reputation of those old studio people is that they're all kind of fake, right? And he's playing this dishonest, sham, small-town lawyer, right? And he's facing off against all these method kids, you know, Ben Gazzara, stuff like that, right? And, and it's, it's all about- right there. Yeah. Gazzara, he yeah, loves and, him. And it's all about who's more authentic, who's who's, you know, who's the better liar, which is to say the better actor, whatever. And Jimmy Stewart wins. The character wins in that movie. And he really does act circles around the rest of the cast in that film. So, you know, there's a bunch of those particularly, there's a bunch of those particularly as the method is emerging. Another big one is Red River, a movie I actually despise uh, with John Wayne Mm. and Montgomery Clift, where Montgomery Clift so overpowers John Wayne um, that the movie becomes difficult to take seriously because you're just like, yeah, why, why doesn't this young guy just kill this dude and, and take over? Mm. He's, he's so much better. Um, and so you see that here, right? In that Gene Hackman arises at a time where if you were going to be a serious American actor, you studied with someone who was adapting Stanislavski's techniques. Whether it was Uta Hagen, Sanford Meisner, you know, uh, Stella Adler, Lee Strasberg, Robert Lewis, those were the big ones. There's a few others, but that was what you did, Right. If you were in his generation and Denzel, who is younger, has comes from a generation that is uh, less dogmatic, comes from a generation that's more eclectic in its techniques. You know, um, he he's done a lot of stage work, but he's primarily a a creature of the screen, you know, Um, and also it's we should say rises up through something that was not possible in Gene Hackman's day, which is work written and directed by black people. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. specifically Spike Lee. And so, you know, he he really is coming from a different world, just as the character is coming from the Ivy Leagues and the officer candidate school and West Point and all that stuff. And Gene Hackman is, you know, a white working class kind of Trumpian Trump voter kind of character. Right. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I have some thoughts on that I want to get into when we get into those into those characters that you've alluded to, but that was such a fabulous answer to that question. Can we just talk for 10 hours um, about this? But that's <laughs> what we want to talk about today, right? That's why this, as again, you're uh, you're proving that you are the perfect guest because this is this this is going to be an interesting episode to really get into the nitty gritty of the acting. Um, let's do our top line fact check just to put yeah. this in a little bit of um, a historical context. Do you have um, like a little song that you play for the top line fact check? We should have I one. do a little dance. Top line um, fact, <laughs> fact check. check. Top line fact check. Boop, 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 boop. We should. 
should yeah. have songs. But it um, should be the music from Crimson Tide to really create a Wait, wait. Really quickly, really quickly. It is so annoying to me that the main theme from Crimson Tide got this Grammy attention because it is just one of the motifs from Star Wars vaguely mm-hmm. rearranged with you know some synth choir i don't know well it's also very similar to the rock theme it makes me think of the music from the rock yeah. you know it's just it's it's a very it's fun it's fun well, i have it's a point nice. about that as well in in, in die hard dna in in a moment uh, about the music um but yeah just placing this in a bit of context crimson tide had its wide release on may 12 1995 um, which was five months after Drop Zone, also scored by Hans Zimmer, uh, December, which was December 9th, 1994. Zimmer has really taken o- ownership of this of, of Hollywood and this genre at this point. Um, this is almost now seven years after Die Hard. Um, it was uh, directed by Tony Scott, of course, produced by Simpson and Bruckheimer, whose stamp is all over this movie. The screenplay was by Michael Schiffer, based on a story by Schiffer and Richard P. Henrik, although, as we will talk about later, um, the script passed through the hands of some some very famous amazing, screenwriters amazing who writers. worked as uh, script doctors on the movie. It, of course, stars Denzel Washington, Gene Hackman, Viggo Mortensen, James Gandolfini, George Zunzer, and Matt Craven, uh, amongst a, a pretty amazing ensemble cast. On an estimated budget of $53 million, it grossed $157 million. So those are the facts. But One to- thing I think that's just interesting that I thought was worth bringing up is that um, the supporting cast in this movie reminds me a little bit of the supporting cast of Oppenheimer. In the sense that you're like, he's in this? This person isn't? Like, everyone is in this movie, and they're on set for a month or two months and maybe have a few lines. I have a friend who is in Oppenheimer, but I think he was only there for a couple days. Uh, uh, He plays uh, Kurt Girdle. He has one. He just waves it. Oh, Urbaniac? Yeah, 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 yeah. He's great in it. He's great in it. He's so good. Um, It's sort of the inverse, though, because this is a lot of people were catching before they're famous, right? Because, like, you know, Gandolfini had had done True Romance. Ryan Phillippe is not famous yet. Uh, Steve Zahn's not famous yet. Uh, Vigo Morton's, or actually, wait, when is Reality Bites? I hey, Reality Bites was a year before, so he okay, was on, so, he was on yeah, the way, sorry. but maybe his part was probably cut down a bit. I would imagine in this. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't think Vigo's too big a deal yet, right? Um, no, he's uh, on the way, but again, not. He's totally been in there. Witness, right? Yeah. He's been yeah. in Witness. He was in Witness George, in '85. Yeah, George, George Zunza, Zunza been is in, big from Law and Order and Basic uh, Instinct and Basic as well. Instinct, he has a great yeah. part in that. Yeah, and Dan, uh, the guy who plays um, the Russian despot is also. In Oh yeah, he's instinct. in. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Daniel von Bargen. Well, going back to your point about the music, um, which brings us to the section of the show, which also Die needs a theme tune. DNA. <laughs> we like to call Die Hard DNA, where we we put some of these things under the microscope a little, with a little bit more focus to connect them to the original movie that we're talking about here. Um, the music, I, I mean, I would say like, yes, I know I know exactly what you're talking about with, with <laughs> it's kind of, it's classic sort of, uh, you might, if you're being unkind, you might say sort of cookie cutter Hans, Hans Zimmer. It has less um, specificity than some of it. It's a bit more nebulous than some of his other scores mm. that are a bit more, a uh, bit more specific. But I would say that the music kind of harkens back to Red, Hunter Red October to some oh, extent. Clearly, those, yeah orchestral choirs right and yeah uh and, and the symphonic nature of it of course that was a john mctiernan uh movie but the real in terms of really specific diehard dna you know this is a classic bad guys take over a blank and it's up to you know one guy or group of group of folks to fight back in this case the blank is a, is a nuclear submarine but again it's it's high stakes 
cat and mouse action in a contained physical environment. And it's a mm. psychological battle of wits and wills between these two fearsome, cunning, and highly intelligent um, adversaries. It's, it's a classic kind of unstoppable force meets immovable object uh, movie, you know? So those were, those were my... Um, that was my interpretation of how this connected back to Die Hard. If you have anything to add to that, uh, please do. Well, well, what I think is fascinating is, you know, because of the kind of real-time conceit of the second half, the, the Die Hard aspect of it is like 15 minutes it's it's like the black tar heroine of Die Hard, right? It's like we've <laughs> distilled Die Hard down into its purest essence. We're going to spend an hour setting up, you know, the premise on some level, right? And getting letting you get to know the characters. And then we're fucking shooting this into your veins mm -hmm. and like pressing the plunger down. And in a weird way, I think that slow burn quality of it is why it's so effective if it's been a while since you've seen this movie you might remember the various takeovers of the submarine happening further apart than they do mm -hmm. or being more of the movie than they are but they are actually the third act of the film right it's the true and, and again like Die Hard it takes a long time to set up the characters set up the interrelationships um, before you know they kind of ignite the fuse yeah, um, totally. as it as it were well let's take a short break and then we can dig into this in a little bit more detail with anatomy of an action movie we'll be right back what's so special about hero bread soft fluffy and delicious breads buns and tortillas these ultra low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar fewer calories and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health shop now at hero.co Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And we're back with not anatomy of a murder, but anatomy of an action movie where we break down the tenets. We live in a twilight world. And there are no friends at dusk of the action movie genre. Starting oh, with the God. premise. Uh, sorry, the premise sorry, of. Uh, sorry. <laughs> it just gives us an excuse to talk about our favorite revulsion. movie of oh, 2020. God. You know what's the best part of Tenet is that he lifted the Elizabeth Debicki plotline directly from The Night Manager, which has mm. Elizabeth Debicki playing the same role. He was just like, yes. I'm just going to lampshade my complete That's a plagiarism good of this. I'm just going to lift it and then put the actor in it. Yeah, I'm just going to sit here breathing angrily like Kenneth Branagh when he goes into the whatever that reverse place is called on the other side of you the You should booth. listen to the conversation I had with Bilga Abiri about how we, we think uh, Branagh's incredible in that movie. And on every rewatch, he gets better and better and better. But that might not be a agreed upon opinion here. Bilga, man, I love you, but you're wrong. You're wrong, buddy. If you're he listening just has to this, the, he has the best this, dad Bilga, taste. I love Bilga, you. You're just we wrong. Love you. You're wrong on we this one. We love you. Wrong on this one. <laughs> All right. So well, from Phil. John David Washington to Denzel Washington, exactly. who Ooh. is one of the figures, uh, central figures of this film, the premise for which is 
which is quite kind of it's kind of difficult to distill because even though it sounds simple, there's actually quite a lot of moving parts. But essentially, when a when a U.S. nuclear submarine loses communication with the command structure just as they've been ordered to fire their payload against a rogue Russian general who was threatened to attack the West, the sub's two senior officers disagree on whether or not they should launch their nuclear missiles as they were ordered to a situation that ultimately leads to a full-on mutiny as the specter of World War III looms large. Pretty incredible premise. I read that actually Don Simpson uh, saw a documentary on the Discovery Channel or something called Steel Sharks uh, that was about submarines and and, uh, and the premise was actually built out of that and then Michael Schiffer expanded it. And of course, it all really zeroes down to this incredible moral conundrum, which is at the, at the center of this, which is they get the initial order, right, that says launch codes compromised, um, you know, fire fire the weapons at the at the missile silo that has been seized by this, this renegade Russian general. Um, but then there's a second message, which is incomplete, which could rescind the order or could be a fake or could be, it could be any number of things. And the military protocol says you ignore that order um, it's an incomplete message. You have to uh, actually follow through on the first order, which has been authenticated, and that means fire your your missiles. What I think is so amazing about this premise is that you can make a great argument for the the Gene Hackman's camp interpretation of it. That's not what I would do. I I mean, I would certainly side, you know, with, with stakes that high, I would completely side on the, you know, side with mm. the Denzel Washington uh, camp that are like, no, we need more information. This is too big a, this is too big a decision. Whereas what one of the things that was so interesting when I was reading, looking at what Gene Hatton was saying about the character was like, he saw his character as someone that was black and white, whereas Denzel Washington was saw the world in shades of gray and he liked the simplicity of it and that's how the military used to be and now there's this ambiguity but i think it's so fascinating that there is a moral conundrum that you could genuinely make a case for both both interpretations are technically correct which is kind of what jason robot says at the end mm. you know I, except, I, I just think that's so intelligent you know i i agree with the brilliance of the premise except i woke up this morning and i realized something which is it is not necessary to use nuclear weapons to destroy the missile silos. Mm. Those could be destroyed with conventional weapons, which is something the movie, rather than explaining, is just like, never mind, it's fine. Let's just let's just not like mm. it breezes through it so quickly that it wasn't until the next morning I woke up. I was like, wait a second, they're just they're just buildings. You can just blow them up. Right. You can just blow them up. It's not that big a deal. And uh, um, uh, and in fact, my brain in remembering this is where not having seen the movie in a while was helpful. My brain misremembered it, that the message says the missiles have launched and it is a retaliatory strike because right. world war three has begun that in the but sub, they supposed think to be preventative is right. 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 But yes. instead it's, it's a preemptive preventative strike. That's yes. what really happens in the movie. But it's interesting that my, my, my hippocampus like saw a plot hole and solved it or something, but, but it sort of doesn't matter because the premise is so delicious. It's such a great, you know, I mean, it almost feels like a classic, uh, live studio drama from the 1950s. Mm -hmm. Well, that was my next right? question actually you know? about yeah. that, you know, because I mean, yes, I think th this has its echoes in real world scenarios like the Cuban Missile Crisis, where which was a lot of 
confusion and miscommunication yeah. that led to a, an almost um, nucle nuclear conflict. Um, but you, you do make a really valid point about that. Like strategically, would they have to actually launch nukes to solve that problem? Maybe, maybe not. Um, I think that's a really good point. But going back to what you just said, like, could you consider this? And again, I don't know the, you would know the exact um, terminology definitions. Is this, would this be considered a chamber piece drama? It's certainly a marriage of the chamber piece and the action film, right? Or the suspense thriller. I'm not even sure action film is always the right category, mm -hmm. although although it has a couple sequences, you know, the amazing uh, when they're being hunted by the Russian sub and stuff like that. But, you know, it, it's got the lowest death toll probably of any 90s action mm -hmm. film. Three people die. Denzel Washington gets punched in the face twice. You know, it's, 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 it's an the exception of the Akula. Film, right? The Akula submarine going down is oh, the yeah, only but they're sort Russian. of like... Who cares? It's, um, not about <laughs> the, it's not about the action, is it? It's an anti-action movie. Yeah. It's a drama. Yes, at its, and it, at its it, fundamental core. And because Star Trek is mentioned in a in a section that's almost certainly ghost written by Quentin Tarantino, the, uh, the the Star Trek movie that it's most reminiscent of is, of course, The Wrath of Khan, which is also about a face off between two men, has a very low body count, you know, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. Um, uh it is a. It, it, I think you can call it a chamber piece. It's it's within one location. Chamber pieces are often within one room, like Twelve Angry Men. Um, uh, but you know, it's within one location. It is all about the psychology of the characters. That's actually what drives everything. Is is character psychology? You know that and and so yeah. I mean, I think that's correct. And I think your idea that it's kind of an anti-action movie is part of what's really clever about it and really interesting that it's a Bruckheimer Simpson joint, right? Like they have a couple of these. There's this, there's the ref. Um, mm. uh, there's a few others where they're really departing from their mold in a fascinating way. And I wonder if part of the appeal for them with this movie is, you know, we've done Top Gun. We've done all these other things. Let's do one that's like a quieter acting driven kind of yes. drama and less about, you know, shooting people or whatever. Well, I also just think it's interesting. You mentioned that it feels like a 1960s live or 1950s live broadcast kind of thing that you would see like play of the week, right? Yeah, and totally. the, the, the film that I immediately thought of is 1964's Failsafe. Right. That's the one I was is, trying to think of, actually. Yeah. As you, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Which is about sort of a, the, I have the, the, the description up here. The film follows a crisis caused by a critical error that sends a group of U.S. bombers to destroy Moscow and the ensuing attempts to stop the bomber before it can deploy a nuclear first strike. Interestingly, do you guys know who directed Failsafe? Why, sure yes, I do. Why, Why yes, I do. Why, yes, I do. It was actor, studio mainstay, a uh, key figure in the method revolution in Hollywood, Sidney Lumet. Exactly. And it stars Henry Fonda, Walter Matthau, and like uh, Dom DeLuise and like a who's who of actors who I imagine come from a variety of styles and a variety of traditions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, Henry Fonda is really interesting as well because, of course, Jane is one of the most important method actors of all time. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and Henry Fonda comes from the old studio system. So, yeah, I mean, Failsafe, uh, uh, you know, December Seven 50, Days in May was another one that I thought of, right? That was also one of the one of your guys, John, John Frankenheimer. John Frankenheimer. I love Seven Days in May. That's a great movie. That's part of his kind of loose paranoid trilogy with um manchurian candidate and seconds the craziest Ugh. movie you know of all time uh 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 yeah no frankenheimer yeah i mean those kinds of thrillers that are still kind of character based it's sort of a political thriller as well you know mm -hmm. um uh, i don't know they're very juicy i love them 
Yeah, they are really good. And and those, I don't think there's like a modern action movie culture without John Frankenheimer, honestly. Yeah. I think he's like a bridge from the classic drama to the And of course, he worked thriller. with Hackman in uh, French Connection 2. Right. Uh, which is, which is amazing and has that I think it's a really good movie ending yeah, ever. it's, it's anyway, a really good movie anyway um, the ticking clock on, oh you want to talk about the ticking well, clock okay, can, well, can I ask one yeah, question and maybe this should go somewhere else but I'm curious because you all have done actual research on this movie and I'm just some jerk who yeah. wrote a book uh, <laughs> okay. did, did, did the set tilt do I you believe know, it was on did they the, as, build a tilting set? Because yes. there are moments where they're like walking uphill across the sub. I think it's the called a gimbal. I think it's called it's a, a gimbal, gimbal right? Yeah, they, gimbal. they did the same technique with um, with Humphrey Red October, where yes, it tilts. Because uh, I was like, I was either like, these guys are the greatest physical actors of all time, <laughs> yeah, yeah, or yeah. they've built a, a tilting set. Okay, good, great. Yeah. Glad to have that. It's pretty right. authentic. I gather they were pretty diligent about making it geographically accurate to actual nuclear nuclear submarines for Got authenticity's it. sake. They tend to be, Simpson and Brockheimer do tend to be quite, I mean, their movies tend to be, a lot of them are about the military, right? Like right. Top Gun, uh, this the movie, Bl The Rock, Black Hawk Down. Um, that was after Simpson or, Simpson or passed. But, you know, they, they are quite into their military verisimilitude. The ticking clock of this movie is, is really, can Hunter prevent Ramsey and the sailors who are loyal to him from seizing control of the submarine and firing the nukes, even as this as the damaged sub is essentially blind, deaf, and debilitated. So it becomes, as you said, it's like coup, counter coup, another counter coup, you know, for for to seize control of the launch, the launch coast, which again isn't a million miles away from Hans Gruber and uh give me my detonators, you right. know? Um so it, it it's an incredible ticking clock. Um but what's great about it as well is that we are, to the Chamber of Peace drama point, we're in that. We never see what's above the surface. And if you did, I think the, the air would be let out the balloon. We are in the sub the entire time. We have the same information that the characters have, the same lack of information. Yep. We have no idea whether they are whether they should launch, whether they shouldn't launch, what the consequence could, could be if they don't launch, what that could mean if they had the opportunity to prevent this rogue Russian general firing nuclear weapons at the West and they didn't act. We'd right. have none of, we have none of that information, which makes it's just so compelling. I mean, do you guys have a favorite scene in this in this movie? Oh, oh. there's there's so many. There's so many that are great. I actually love all the stuff prior to the the ticking clock starting, yeah. where you figure where although they're not, they never say it out loud. You realize that the Gene Hackman character and the Denzel Washington character despise each other, right? Like all the stuff that sets up their antagonism, um, the conversation about Hiroshima, right? The uh, the part where um, they have the fire and Hackman you know, orders them to do the test and, and Denzel Washington's questioning him. And then, you know, Gene Hackman says, never question my authority in front of the crew. You know, all of that stuff where Hackman and Washington are testing each other is probably my favorite um, uh, material. Most of my least favorite material is actually the openly Tarantino stuff. Um, uh, uh, I can Interesting. see, I, I think that like, you know, one of the great things about those 90s films, those 90s action films, think of The Fugitive as the, probably the best at this, is the idea that anyone who has more than three lines is going to have a distinct personality. 
right? We're going to cast an interesting character actor to play them. They're going to have some kind of quirk. There's going to be something going on with them, whatever it is. You know, yes. this this nurse has five lines. We're going to have her play by Jane Lynch and we're going to have her wear a pink triangle pin so the audience knows she's gay. You know, it's like stuff like that. And in this one, they just do it by everyone suddenly talking like a Tarantino character in a way that I find um, uh, uh, interesting. feels like the second rate writers who came after him copying his work, even though it's actually just he he's not quite at his uh, mature style yet. So I find the Silver Surfer conversation pretty annoying. I find the um, James Gandolfini having a comprehensive knowledge of submarine movies <laughs> to be something that yeah. makes no sense with that character. And I actually agree with Denzel Washington that the racialized conversation about the horses at the end of the movie is a mistake. Interesting. There's yeah. so much to unpack in what you just said, because like the thing that I like about the Silver Surfer stuff is my favorite character in this movie in some ways is Rivetti because yeah. I love his arc in the story and I and I do agree it's weird it's weird to me and maybe this is uh, like some kind of weird thing in my head that all of a sudden Denzel Washington would be like and everybody knows that Kirby Silver Surfer is better than a Mo- Mobius Silver so like it it feels like a little left fielded but what it does do is it buys him a little loyalty from Rivetti, which is crucial to the second half of the movie. Right, but just the idea that this submarine is floating around with one, let alone three different people who know the difference between the Silver Sur- a 1960s comic <laughs> that's, and a 1970s exactly. comic, neither of which are frequently reprinted, in the midst of this movie that's all about some attempt at verisimilitude is insane to me. I'm just like, what are you doing? The one thing I like about Gandolfini's knowledge, and I, I agree with you, it's weird with that character, is that it does the thing that Die Hard does, which I think at the time was, at Die Hard's case, was really revolutionary. When when Bruce Willis says, and enough, uh, and what is it, enough firepower to orbit on yeah. Schwarzenegger, Schwar- Schwarzenegger, it steps outside of the like movie world. Right. And, and I wouldn't say it quite becomes meta, but it it sort of sets up this world where like pop culture exists in these movies. And, and I like that as a... And I certainly not to credit to Tarantino with it because other people did it before, but it gives it that like these are guys of a certain age and a certain generation. But I agree it makes no sense. With but to that movie. point, there's something I want to pick up on, which pivots back to something, a point I wanted to make earlier, because the other thing that Hans Gruber references is Rambo. He calls him, right. and you mentioned John Wayne earlier as well. And he says, just another American who thinks he's John Wayne. Rambo. And I, I wanted to bring it back to Rambo and to First Blood, which has been on been on my mind lately because I just revisited it. And it's actually very similar in its setup to First Blood, which was the precursor to Die Hard, because you have these two characters, and you alluded this mm. alluded to this earlier, right? They're actually both veterans. They're different generations. I'm talking about Stallone as John Rambo and Brian right. Dennehy as the Sheriff Will Teasel. Will Teasel in First Blood is a Korean War vet. And Rambo is a Vietnam vet. They are generationally different. In right. the book, it's a little bit more like there's a fatherhood aspect to it that also exists here. Like Gene Hackman is old enough theoretically to be um, Denzel Washington's uh, father, potentially. That's similar to the situation with Dennehy and and, and, um, and Stallone in, in Rambo. They also, uh, the, the author uh, talked about that that movie as being like, and you said this earlier with, with Hackman as like a Trump voter, that Dennehy is like a Republican and Stallone is a Democrat, right? Like in, in term, it, so, and this film I think is, the, it, it, it descends from that lineage again with these two like really, really strong forceful actors that represent different things. And then as you also just touched on, there is also the racial 
component which is kind of a bit uh, is sticky and and it led to this disturbing. really uh it's a horrible it's really right really really like nasty and unpleasant and of course it, the it's assumed and understood that tarantino wrote that and that caused an issue with him and, and denzel washington for a long time they eventually buried buried the hatchet but let's talk about denzel washington let's talk about the hero uh denzel washington as lieutenant commander ronald hunter where does this rank? I mean, this was him moving into the action genre. Right. Where, well, we talked about Ricochet a little bit. We where he'd done, uh, we'd done a sort of uh, you know scuzzy action thriller that we're we're kind of partial to. But he'd done pretty prestigious films. He'd done Glory, won the Oscar. He'd done all of these important Spike Lee films, in particular Malcolm X. Now he was about to begin his five collaborations with Tony Scott. Where does this rank for you as an expert on? on acting, on Meisner, on method acting, right. among his greatest performances. Hmm. I mean, it's hard to be like, what's the greatest Denzel Washington yeah. performance? I mean, That's like, a whole for, other for, podcast. For, for my money, it's Malcolm X and Fences are probably his mm. two best performances. But then you look at like, you know, some of his lighter weight stuff, like Mississippi Masala and stuff like that. And, you, you know, um, uh, I would say that this is definitely, I think, the best of the five movies he made with Tony Scott and the best of his five performances with Tony Scott. Um, uh, uh, but then again, like, is he ever bad? I mean, it, you know, like, like it, it, it's really startling. Yeah. <clears throat> and some of that is that I think he knows himself and what he's good and bad at and what he's capable of and what audiences want and don't want from him very well. There's lots of stories of, you know, the kind of advice that he's given other actors and things like that, that he's a pretty small C conservative guy about what you do and don't do. Um, there's the very famous, you know, he told Will Smith not to do six degrees of separation because he would have a gay sick kiss in it, you know, things like that. Um, so I think he's in control of his public image, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, uh, but within that, you know, his range is really broad and i can't think of a movie where he's not good i'm, I'm hard pressed to find one where he's not good um uh but this is probably my favorite of his action film performances for sure yeah and it sort of sets the template and, and defines a whole side of his career that comes you know right uh, he does five movies with tony scott right right and know. then you know and then that pays off again in inside man which he, which mm -hmm. you know, which where he re sort of brings that so back good. to Spike Lee. There's things about that movie that I don't love, but mm -hmm. he is unbelievable in it. Unbelievable he's in so it. Funny it's also a diehard so uh, type movie. You know, absolutely, uh, heist absolutely. contained like is again, that on the cat list, and shit. Absolutely, I can't you know wait. The, I love that movie. You know the scene where he's talking to uh, uh, the Arab American guy, and the guy's talking about being racially profiled, and he just smiles at him and goes, "Yeah, but can you hail a cab?" Like it's like a perfect New York City moment. You know, it is, there's yes. so much life experience that's just distilled in that one line and the look he gives him. You know, the 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 Denzel Washington half smile is one of the great gestures of screen acting. It as really is, is. As is that weird kind of droopy thing he does with the left half of his face i mean it's like you know he's just he's incredible he's always incredible um i would put this again i would say this is probably my favorite of his action film performances um but you would have to go to his dramatic work to get my favorite you know yeah, I mean, he, Washington, there's so Washington. many incredible, incre he's exceptional in everything. And yeah. well, one I think just pivoting us to our next point is that Denzel Washington said that the two greatest actors he's ever worked with, one is Dakota Fanning, funnily enough, <laughs> mm. in Man on Fire, and the other is Gene Hackman. So now I had been. Which no, wait, wait. Was our, he our... on a publicity tour for Man on Fire when he said that, or was he like, probably? Yeah, probably, because that's the yeah. sort of thing you know when an actor's like, "I have three favorite scripts, and the third one is whatever it's one a great, they're working on." It's a great soundbite, like, right? Yeah. Come on, man. But 
<laughs> Bringing us to our antagonist, Gene Hackman, as Captain Franklin Ramsey. You know, one of the things I've been thinking about a little bit with this show and one of the movies I enjoyed going back to the most out of all of these wonderful movies was was Narrow Margin. And I think it was because I, I just loved spending like an hour and a half on a train with Gene Hackman. And I think I've come to the conclusion that Gene Hackman is actually my favorite mm. movie star. Now, wait, I are you a dad? You. Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think, you know, once you're a middle-aged dad, I'm a middle-aged dad too. I think yeah. once you're a middle-aged dad, here. as soon as you're a middle-aged dad, you know, uh, they send you an early issue of the AARP newsletter and there's a little card in it that says member of the Gene Hackman fan club. I think it's just a thing that, <laughs> I think that I'm looking forward to getting that. It should yeah. be, should, yeah. hopefully it's probably in the mail. My father-in-law's favorite actor was Gene Hackman. It's also, yeah. it goes back for me to like Hoosiers, uh, which was called Best Shot in the UK. And that has like a very, I have a very powerful relationship with with that movie Um, i love that movie i love that movie dennis hopper is so good in it so good gene hackman so good the the ending with the with the where they're you know due to segregation which they haven't really been talking about the whole movie and then the end they're like oh we're playing a black basketball team now is such a brilliant like ripping the curtain back from what's really going on i don't know hoosiers is incredible it's amazing but my question for you is why is he so special Mm. So that's a good question. Um, part of it is that there that that there's a kind of t- braiding together of gruffness and sensitivity that I think is really fascinating. You know, he has that. There are certain non-negotiables with him as an actor, and one of them is the speaking voice. Right, you're never going to see Gene Hackman be an Do Australian dandy yeah. or something like that's never going to happen. Right. You know, he has that kind of gruff voice that's in, in everything. And that kind of snarl to him that, you know, that he's capable of being really scary. Like you could just tell that's like, not a guy I want yelling at me. That would be an unpleasant experience, scary. you know, like scary in the way that a, that an angry drunk dad is scary. Like that mm-hmm. kind of personally scary. But then there's also like a great sensitivity and delicacy and nuance that he brings to everything he does a real soulfulness, I think, you know, mm-hmm. which really helps with this character because it's really important that even though you don't like Ramsey, you see his point of view and you're like, well, actually his arguments make sense. I don't agree with them. I don't like him. He seems like kind of a dickwad, you know, he's a hard ass and all this stuff, but, but it makes sense and it makes sense to him and, and it has a validity to him. And I think part of what the method can help an actor do and what it certainly helps Hackman do is you're going to get inside the skin of the character you're trying to well not really be the character but you're trying to meet the character and there's a suspension of judgment and a radical extension of empathy that that requires you have to find the parts of yourself that are akin to the character and Mm. and you build the character out that way and you see it really um pay off in in Hackman and that he seems to really be um, believing in and making the best case for those characters. And so there's something extraordinarily compelling about that, I think. And I think that's even true in something like Royal Tenenbaums, one of my favorite movies, my fa- I mean, one of my favorite performances by him, where, you know, the, the, the script and the mise-en-scene are providing the irony in that performance. He's not being ironic. Right, he's he's doing what 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 Tannenbaum thinks he needs to do to win back his wife and his family and all of this stuff. It's that the character is ridiculous, you know. And so I I think that that's why he's um, uh, 
so compelling. I think it is also important, I'm just going to say this as a bugaboo of mine, that he looks like a normal human being. Yep. He yes. let himself age. He's bald. He's got a gut. You know, like one of the other things that was going on with those method actors in the 70s is that, I mean, many of them were incredibly beautiful, but they, but they looked like real people. And they let right. themselves look like real people. And that is something that I think we're increasingly losing, right? But I think you're right about the dad thing because there is that there's something paternal about him. Totally. And it can be good or bad, right? Like you just said, it can be could be the terrifying disciplinarian or it can be the incredibly kind, nurturing like coach like he is in, in Hoosiers. Is this the greatest acting slash acting battle? This is a question from both of you guys. Like, mm. Is this the greatest acting battle or acting that has ever been in an action movie, in this movie? Ooh, that's interesting. That's hmm. interesting. I'm trying to think. Um, you know, oh boy. The action would, movie genre is so capacious, I mean, you know, and it's been with us for so long. Um, uh, it's certainly my favorite. Of, well, no, uh, this and the, you know, Tommy Lee Jones, Harrison Ford uh, yes. pairing in The Fugitive, if we're thinking about the 90s. But the important thing about that pairing is they're never on camera together. Yeah, right? Absolutely. Again, um, like Die Hard, they're separated yeah, from I mean, the movie. The performances, all of the performances in The Fugitive are brilliant, but they're but it's not actually them face to face in terms of these kinds of face to face confrontations. Um, I think there's very few that, that beat it, I would say. What do you think, Liam? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, one of the things that I think is amazing about this movie is that, and I think that we can cover the action section quickly, is that when we were chatting on the phone yesterday, Phil, prepping for this episode, we were like, oh, this is kind of like a stage play or a chamber drama or whatever you want to say. It is still such a robust action film right. with the pursuit of the submarine and the torpedoes and all the things you expect. Now the enemy is like faceless in a way that is powerful because it's really about the enemy within the ship. But I think what is so special about this movie is that it's a movie about close-ups and watching people react. And you mentioned before Denzel Washington's droopy face move or the way he half smiles or yeah. the way Hackman builds to a boil and goes, now shut the fuck up in that moment in the movie. It's extraordinary to watch something that is cut like an action film in terms of tempo and speed, especially at this time. And this predates Tony's. There are some later Tonyisms in this movie, including using news footage to, uh, to, to give you exposition, which he does remarkably in Unstoppable, which is one of his last films, also Denzel, uh, incredible Denzel performance. But he's really reliant on acting in this movie and I wouldn't say long takes, but he lets the actors act yeah. in this movie. And he does it in close-up, and he knows when to cut. And it's a great fusion of director's style at this moment and great acting. It, it's kind of like I, the insider in that way, right? Where, like, the whole point, you know, the, the mm. formal challenge of the insider, one of my one of my favorite movies for Me Michael too. Mann, is, like, how to shoot a movie that's, you know, faxes being sent back and forth as if it's an action film. And I think, you know, he kind of nails that. One of my favorite close-up details in this movie is in the scene, the shut the fuck up scene where Gene Hackman's like the character's kind of losing it. He's wearing these almost Coke bottle glasses yeah. that make his eyes look insane. Like he just looks like a crazy <laughs> yeah. person during yeah. that scene. It's such a brilliant little detail of costumes that in the moment 
where we need to sympathize the most with Denzel Washington. They make the Gene Hackman character look like like an alien, right? Like he's <laughs> he looks so bizarre in that sequence when he's staring at Denzel, um, almost humorous, you know. And uh, uh, yeah, no, I agree with you. I agree with you. The whip pants. It's got the Tony Scott whip pants. That's another big. Uh, gesture of his right? it, it does have the whip pans it follows them around i just want to highlight one moment um in the movie that i rewatched three times there were two one is when he goes now Cobb, and and they have to take hackman away i think that that moment is extraordinary and the moment when gandolfini reaches for denzel washington's hand and he slaps him off yeah and you hear the gun cock and it's like denzel doing a giant gesture and Denzel, Denzel doing a slightly smaller, clean, and we don't cut to a close-up. It stays on the side. Right. And so you you have a little space from it. And I just think that there's like, despite there's an despite it being a Tony Scott movie, there's an economy to this movie that I think is extraordinary. The acting is the action. The yeah. acting is the juice, if you will, <laughs> right. in this movie. Yeah. It's nice. the, it, uh, it is those moments. It's those micro-expressions or gestures yeah. or the slap or like you just said, Denzel refusing to, you know, be, be touched or all of those kind of choices are actually the action. There is amazing action. We, we've already covered it uh, to some extent. Um, there is a, there's a fantastic submarine um, explosion slash implosion, which was revolutionary at the time. But I think we should, um, we've already covered humor really with, with the, with the Tarantino stuff and the, the Star Trek bit and the Silver yeah. Surfer bit and, uh, and the submarine movies, uh, self-referentiality. Should we put on our tuxedos? Isaac, do you have your, um, your tuxedo because yeah, we're going yeah. to... Or your naval uniform, whatever you want to put on. <laughs> yeah, put I have on my, naval, my naval dress whites. Yes, excellent. Uh, as we as we take our little uh, submarine over to the Die Hard Oscars. A.K.A. the Action Movie Awards. Phil, will you please... Let me hang on. Let me just get my tuxedo on. Da, 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 da. A lot of smoking in this movie. I don't know why I brought that up, but I feel like I'm thinking about the uh, old Oscars where everyone smoked all the time. Can you smoke <laughs> on a nuclear submarine? That was my that? question. Yeah, that was my wild. question. You can you can smoke that much on a submarine? I mean, I guess... I mean, I mean Vigo is chugging those those Marlboros, man. He is yeah. chugging them. It's incredible. All right, And the Phil, cigars. Your... Oh, yeah. The cigars look good. Hackman makes those cigars look good. Phil... Yes. List our nominees. All righty. For our first category is the is the John McClane Yippie Kaye Award for Best Line. I have three nominees. All right. Um, you feel free to add uh, if you have one you want to throw in the mix. Uh, the first is we're here to preserve democracy, not to practice it, which mm. I think is actually kind of like pretty the theme hard to beat. Stated. Hard to beat. Hard to beat. Pretty Incredible. impressive. Um, my other, of course, is Mr. Hunter. I've made my decision. I'm the captain of the ship. Now shut the fuck up. All right. <laughs> the fucking delivery of that line. It's incredible. Like, Maybe the whoa, delivery more than the whoa. line, but it is. The delivery makes it insane, which is Captain Ramsey. And then the other line that I love that was rather crude, if you'll forgive the uh, the crude. Oh, I know what this line. is going to be, and it's my favorite but line in the movie. It's Zimmer when he's talking mm -hmm. about the fact that the Russians are fueling their missiles, and he says, you don't put on a condom unless you're going to fuck. And again, it's like the line delivery as well puts it over the top. But that is like that is a fantastic like piece of piece of writing. Those were my three. Did you have a 
Do you have a pick out of those guys or, or one you want to add? I, I'm going to go with the first one. And the reason why I'm going to go with the first one is I think it's one of the lines that connects the action of the film to its themes. The part of what, mm-hmm. what the movie, if you want to get, if you want to get like deep with this movie, maybe deeper than the movie intends, but still, right. What this movie is really about is uh, institutions and the people within institutions. Right. And, and the interplay between the structures of the institution and the actual human beings that are within them mm-hmm. in the highest stakes possible possible way which is who gets to decide how we drop the bomb how is that decision made and you know the way it cycles through the authentication stuff over and over and over again you know i concur i concur that this is a podcast episode guys uh uh you I know concur. i concur right i agree um, denzel says to be slightly contrarian yeah, i agree yeah 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 so <laughs> you know all all of that stuff and so I think it's a line that not only is it a really snappy line, but I think it actually points to what's thematically going on in the movie, which is, you know, what is the value of the individual within the institution? How much do the personalities of people shape these events, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. And so I'm going to go with line number one. I agree. I, I love you don't put on a condom unless you're going to fuck. I think Matt Craven is great. I also just want to say that like this is something there's thematically something going on in this movie that has gone on in some of the other films we've talked about, including Andrew Davis speaking of film Under Siege, which is sort of this conversation between pre post Cold War politics and Cold War politics. Right. And Hackman as the sort of, forgive the term, like the battleship of the distrustful age, which he describes as the good old Cold War days at one point in the movie, which is really telling. And I think there's something, there's like an interesting dialogue between Hackman personifying Cold War politics and Denzel Washington as a sort of eggheady, as Hackman would say, post-Cold War figure. You know what's a great movie about that? Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. I've never seen that one. Oh, that's actually, yeah, Star Trek VI is about the end of the Cold War, but it's about a peace treaty between humans and Klingons, or Klingons and the Federation. And the whole point is whether um, Kirk can let go of his Cold War grudges against the Klingons to, like, work to make that treaty happen. Oh, man, I gotta get more into Star Trek. I don't know what I'm doing. That sounds yeah. great. It's that not all really... in one location, though, so you can't cover it for uh, for this. Bummer. Maybe Bummer. we'll find an excuse. I mean, there's some things we're covering on this podcast that are yeah, sketchily connected. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Phil, next. Our next category is the Hans Gruber Exceptional Thief Award for stealing the film. I have three nominees. Um, George Zunza as mm. Cobb, the chief of the boat, Walters. Viggo Mortensen as Weps, the weapons officer, Peter Ince. And the aforementioned Danny Nucci as Sonar Supervisor, Danny Rivetti. I, you put Vigo on here, really, and not Gandolfini? He's coming up in our next category. Okay, okay, okay. Because so, I, I actually yeah. am very underwhelmed by Vigo in this film. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna give it to. I'm underwhelmed by Vigo in most movies. I'm gonna. I, I mean, some of that's just like as an actor. I just think he just doesn't do it for me. I'm not gonna claim he's a bad actor or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just think like I don't. With the exception of History of Violence, I do not. Um, his work that just might be his greatest performances too. He's amazing in that movie. Yeah. Um, uh, so I'm going to say Rivetti. Clearly, I'm going to say Rivetti as well. Do you think the moment where where 
uh, Denzel thanks George Zunza and he's like, fuck you. This, you yeah. know, like, like, you know, this is, it's, these are the rules. That's why I did it because, you know, he loves the Gene Hackman character. The Gene Hackman character is like a father to him and he doesn't know this guy from Adam is a, is a really incredible moment. And he really makes you feel Cobb's dilemmas in the movie. Oh, but he's so, he's so good. He's yeah, so he's good. In great. It. But if we're going to talk about, you know, a guy who comes in and just yeah. through pure charm yanks the movie away from everyone else, it's Rivetti. It's he's Danny Nucci's great. I also think it's fair to say, um, you know, use that that old time expression of like, oh, he's the heart and soul of the movie, which is like this kind of, you know, at this point, it's kind of a cliche. But like there's an argument for all three of the people, as you just said, being like the heart and soul of the movie, you know, like the loyal Cobb, the sort of like young upstart Nucci who like, you know, forms this bond. And then there's uh, what a Weps who like midway through the movie has to deal with like the trolley problem and right. decide if it's worth one person dying or a million people dying. Like I love that in the nineties, an action movie could have like a trolley problem in the middle of it just as a treat, like a fun little, like, you know, <laughs> he also looks like great. Guile from street fighter two. He does look like Guile. So it's like you've got two. Guile from street fighter two <laughs> deciding the, the, the sonic boom. Yeah. Deciding whether <laughs> mankind lives or dies. That is very good. Phil, good Hans choices. Huber. Yeah, let's move on to the Dick Thornburg Award oh, right. for Dick of the movie. I have three nominees for you. All right. Uh, Matt Craven as communications officer, Lieutenant Roy Zimmer. Ooh. Daniel von Bargen as Vladimir Radchenko, the radical Russian leader. And James Gandolfini as Bobby Doherty. Okay, I'm going to make my case for Gandolfini. Beyond the fact that it's Gandolfini and he's great in everything. Even everything. With the, even with that preposterous Southern accent and Get Shorty, he's still delightful. Um, it's the look when they find out that the second message, what the second message says at the end of the movie, and it cuts to Gandolfini, and he looks like he's upset that World War Three isn't <laughs> yes, going to start. He's, he's, he's like pissed. so pissed that we're not going to nuke Russia. Um, it's it's. I actually laughed out loud. It's such a delightfully weird moment that like even Gene Hackman is like. Gene Hackman's character is kind of relieved to be right. He doesn't like that he's wrong, but he's like, all right, I was wrong. We can, we can live with this or whatever. And James Gandolfini's like, I'm just so mad we didn't get to nuke Russia. So he gets the biggest dick, uh, dick of the movie or whatever. I agree, but I want to throw a quick honorable mention to the guy who gets into a fight with Rivetti about the Silver Surfer whose name I forget, but he sucks. Yeah, he and they sucks. all love beating him up. The scene where they yeah, beat him up, they're just like having such up. a great time beating him up. Yeah, but Gandolfini, yeah. I mean, it's not our second movie in a row, but we just covered him on Terminal Velocity where he plays a Russian agent with a New Jersey accent, which is an interesting which is an interesting one. It's very, very- Well, you're right. He is a total like, warmonger. All from and he says Russia. That- in the in that opening scene where you're talking about where he's like they're talking about Hiroshima and he's like yeah we should you know we should we should be dropping nuclear bombs like yeah. he's yeah. So, he's like into it he's also you know uh, smiling when they do this Lippensanner uh, horses stuff like he's clearly oh, yeah, yeah he's he's just a piece he's of a shit. nasty piece of work all right he's can really I, good though can, can we return to the Lippensanner horse stuff because yes. I just want to say. The final scene of the movie requires us to be capable of some kind of compassion yeah. for Gene Hackman's character. And it is impossible to do that after that scene. I had that thought. The yeah. fact that the conflict is racialized is subtextually all throughout the movie, right? There's those, those amazing shots when, uh, I forget who the black officer is who arrests Denzel Washington. Westerberg, right? Westerberg, yeah. where they look at each other and the look of betrayal on Denzel's face. Like, it's already there in the movie. You do not have to have Gene Hackman out of nowhere do this like by the way 
I'm also a big fucking racist, <laughs> you know, um, right before the sequence where we're supposed to see that he's like a man capable of honor. I don't agree. Supposedly Denzel's Washington's problem with it was he thought the sequence was itself racist and was angry at QT for that. Like, I don't necessarily agree with that. I just think it doesn't belong in the movie. Yeah, I had the same thought watching it last night, which is that it makes that final scene, which should, yeah, redeem to some extent, if that's the right word, redeem Hackman's character. Um, it makes it hard to swallow a little bit, yeah. even though Hackman is, they're both incredible throughout, you know, and they're incredible in that scene, even if that scene doesn't work. But it it, it, it unbalances the movie in a way that is that is slightly hard to recover from, even if that last scene on its own feels as though it works. Agree. Agree. We're skipping best death because there's no funny or interesting or exciting deaths in this movie, which means I can't do my Marco impression. Unfortunately, Marco perished on the Akula this yeah. time. He didn't, he didn't make it It, it is sad that Steve, my boy Steve Zahn doesn't make it through much of the movie. Yeah. I love Steve Zahn. I love Steve Zahn. He's so good. So, yes, sadly, Marco is not available this week as he is on the Akula, but don't go anywhere because after this break, we'll be wrapping things up with the Double Jeopardy trivia quiz. We'll be right back. We're back, Phil. Quiz us. Yes, all right. I'm gonna <sighs> dive right in. We got three no questions for you. No method acting questions because we have the king of method acting, you know, on yeah, the we'll show see. right now. We'll see. Okay. So, um, Isaac, the rules are the rules of engagement are: um, we get three. You have three trivia questions. You get one clue. You can phone a friend, aka you can phone Al Powell, and you can choose whether to collaborate with Mr. Billingham or compete with him. Uh, I concur that I will be collaborating with Ooh. Mr. Billingham because oh, I, I, love I just, this. first of all, I'm just not that competitive a dude. And second of all, I will get smoked if we, uh, if we compare. <laughs> right, well, I like thank this. you, Mr. Butler. I was hoping for some sort of Hunter Ramsey style conflict, but I like this because we're can, a warm can, and fuzzy pod. Now, Butler! Can you give me the authentication <laughs> yeah. codes yeah. for these questions? Yeah, can exactly. we verify the authentic? Beta, beta. All right, here we go. Question number one. Go for it. Which member of the Crimson Tide cast served in the United States Navy during World War II and was assigned to the heavy cruiser USS Northampton as a radio man third class. Jason Robards. Nailed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where's he? I watched a documentary about... By the way. uh, Oh, well, Jason Robards is interesting. He pops up, I think, if he doesn't pop up, Forgive me, it's a long book, so I may not remember if I cut him from the book or not. Jason Robards was an up-and-coming uh, uh, acting star. He was very well-known. Um, he's really interesting because he was the leading man of the first acting company at Lincoln Center. Um, which Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah. So so what happened was eventually um, Elia Kazan, who founded the actor studio and hired Lee Strasberg to run it, uh, he leaves the actor studio to co-found the Lincoln Center Theater. Okay. And it's him and the producer, Robert Whitehead. And they have this idea that the, it's going to be a rep company with an ensemble and stuff like that. And Jason Robards is the star actor of that company. So he actually does have a minor, minor part. Uh, the reason why I knew the, the thing that you said was I saw a documentary on Pearl Harbor narrated by Jason Robards. And at wow. one point, you know, he, he's not talking about his own experience, except for one point where he talks about the this is not a drill communique. And he says, I copied that order as a communications officer aboard the blah, 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 blah. So there's a brief moment where he mentions it. And that was that was how I knew that. Yeah, very impressive. By the way, Gene Hackman also was in the Marine Corps for four and a half years as a field radio operator, mm. but it was shortly after World War II had, had ended. Question number two. 
In the Tony Scott-directed Crimson Tide, Viggo Mortensen plays Navy weapons officer Peter Ince, who is largely a mild-mannered character. But in which Ridley Scott-directed film does Mortensen play the ferociously intense Navy Command Master Chief John James Ergale? Oh, shit. Is it Black Hawk Down? No, it it's is not. not. That doesn't make sense. Wait, wait. He plays the Navy Chief who? He plays the ferociously intense Navy Command Master Chief John James Ergale. God damn. Ridley Scott makes like two movies a year. He's uh, making for, one right now, probably. As we're yeah, recording. yeah, I mean, there's a part in his career where he's like almost Soderbergh level prolific. Yeah. So uh, I have no idea. No, you, can no re- I- you can call a friend if you like. You can. You Who's can the friend that I get to call? Powell. Al Powell. Al Powell's on the line. Phil will give us a clue. Great. All, All right. right. Al Powell, give us a clue. I like that you're like, I have to call a friend? This is a weird way to end this. <laughs> it's really el- elaborate. It's really elaborate shit going on. I, first Let's of all, you, simple. First you, get a you made me rent a tuxedo. <laughs> Like, yeah. like, let's talk about the fact that we'll you made me wear a tuxedo we'll first. Yeah, for a thing that is, is a podcast, so no one's going to see me in the well, tuxedo. Well, you also it's... spent six months on a submarine to prepare in the it's incorrect true. method it's true. style. I did. I did. Spot. I did. I the really should get is, paid for this. <laughs> this 1997 film stars Demi Moore as Navy oh. SEAL candidate G.I. Jane. G.I. Jane. G.I. Jane. Yeah. Is correct. And by the way... Yeah. G.I. Jane fucking rules. And That's Viggo good. Mortensen is amazing in this movie. It's Ridley's most Tony Scott movie. It has a really bad reputation, but it is a fantastic, fantastic, legit, legitimately awesome military action Also movie. the greatest it's great. use of stuck my dick in movie history. Oh, it's I've so ever good. Yeah, I love really G.I. Jane. So I just wanted to give it a shout out. Can, can I say, Our, though, the greatest needle drop in the Scott Brothers filmography is Exhibit's motherfucker in Domino. Oh, that's good. That's good. Where the editing, where the where it edits along with him saying "motherfucker" to like do these juddering zooms in oh. on the characters as they get drunk. Domino. 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 What a movie. Um, Third question. Our final question is the section that we like to call convoluted corner, 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 corner. This is the most annoying question in the show. All right. Question number three. You may be surprised to learn that Crimson Tide is not the first film that both Gene Hackman and Denzel Washington appeared in. They were both also among the cast in a 1986 political thriller directed by Sidney Lumet. However, they never shared a scene together. Mm. Can you name this film? Ooh, 80s Lumet is not a specialty of mine. Yeah, I'm actually in the same boat. It's... uh Clue? It's a toughie. It's a toughie. The clue is... It wasn't Clue, Liam. <laughs> oh, come <laughs> well, on. that was close. I think it was 1985. Uh, the clue is this film stars Richard Gere as a political consultant, and its one-word title reflects the central theme that it is exploring. Oh, man. No, I, don't I know. got nothing. I got nothing. What yeah. is it? Yeah, it's a film called Power. Um, which is available on Tubi and is terrific. Um, it's, it's like the network of political consultants oh, and the political kind of like uh, power brokers. Right. It's, it's great. Final thoughts? Anything I love this you guys want to add? I love this movie. I think it's incredible. I think it's really important in the history of action movies that suddenly 
tr acting has become a yeah. huge part of it's not just about spectacle it's not just about high concept it's actually now acting is a front and center and that is a trend that kind of continues with jerry brookheimer and, and and don simpson mainly brookheimer because simpson passes the next year i think in or this year uh with the rock uh were acting as front and center and then even films like Face Off, which I would say is almost like Kabuki level, <laughs> you know, but it's still I, I an love, acting jewel, right? I, I love, I love Face Off. I love it. I love it so much. Yeah, uh, it's one of the. Uh, I'm, I wrote about it for a piece that's going to come out in the New Yorker online uh, uh, about Nicolas Cage uh, soon. I, oh I'm, I'm, a, Send that I'm, a to huge, us, I'm a huge fan. This is what I will say. I do <clears throat> think that the movies of this period have a lot to teach the somewhat moribund action cinema of today. Yeah. That that the that like instead of having a bunch of like the blandest people possible and the hugest explosions possible so that you can sell it in any country to anyone who speaks any language and it will translate and having the movie be like three hours long and have these incredibly long, like discussions of its themes. You know, you can have a movie that is under two hours long that has some really well choreographed sequences, but is mainly actually about the characters and reveals its themes Im more implicitly and is just about like really high end craftsmanship. And um, uh, I, I do think we've lost that to, to some extent. We could talk forever. The last thing I'll say very quickly is Arthur Penn directed a movie called Night Moves with Gene Hackman, oh, which God, is a it's masterpiece. So it's Michael a, Small it's score, a, great Michael yeah, Small score. It, amazing. Uh, one of the great under 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 heralded unheralded movies of the '70s that yeah. everyone should check out. Um, Isaac, this has been great. This I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk to us about this movie and how it fits in with your incredible book, The Method. Thank you. It just came out in paperback, right? It did just Recently? come out, like literally last week. Just came out in paperback. You can find it wherever books are sold. Uh, check it out. I think you'll enjoy it. Oh, and also, I always say. It's my rule. If you buy two copies, you don't have to read it. <laughs> Although you absolutely should because you it absolutely is should. fantastic. What are you working on next? Is there anything you can talk about? Or, uh, yeah, or... I'm working on a book about the culture wars of the 80s and 90s. So oh. about the religious right and, you know, American high art and, and what happened when those two duked it out in the floors of Congress and American courtrooms and all sorts of other things. The piss Jesus and that Piss Christ, stuff? piss Christ. Piss yeah, Christ, yeah. that's what it was, yeah. I interviewed oh. the guy who uh, shot that photo and asked him lots of in-depth uh, craft questions like, whose piss was it? <laughs> well, when that comes out, we'd love to have you back on the show. Absolutely, the I'd piss, love it. I'd if love you would, it. It, and, and it's been so great to talk to you. And thanks so much. Thanks, Absolutely, Isaac. thank you for having me. Thank you, Isaac Butler, author of The Method: How the Twentieth Century Learned to Act. Guys, I'm not kidding. Um, you know, when we finished recording uh, just a minute ago with Isaac and chatted about it, we, I, I am sort of emotional that this book exists. Um. For the reason that I think as someone who spent there, I went to acting school and I studied uh, acting and directing and, and sort of spent a big part of my life really invested in that world. And I'm still invested in that world. And, and uh, I work at a Hollywood company. And, and I think sometimes people, regular folks, uh, which is, you know, understandable, uh, only see the end product and the process through which the method came to be is one of uh, people of heartbreak and war and revolution and immigration and um, just tragedy, but also like just beautiful human spirit. And I think Isaac did the very rare thing of 
connecting an idea in the arts practically to how we live and think in the 21st century. And, and uh, you know, a show like this is a testament to that spirit um, and, and understanding what, what art means in our lives. So I just, I just have to say that I, I love the book and, and please, it is essential reading, if, I think, if you want to understand the 20th century. I completely agree. And I also found it similarly kind of moving and, and touching. You know, I also came from the theatre working in, in London at the Royal Court and, and, uh, and, and had something at Sanford Meister Theatre in New York at one point. And it really reminded me, you know, you think of these iconic figures like Stanislavski and Chekhov as untouchable, you know, godlike beings. And then you, when you read the book and you realize like, oh, they had all the same struggles and insecurities and they were dealing with all of the same um, politics that might have been pressing against them and against their art and relationship problems and collaborative problems and all of the things that artists deal with yeah. and the struggle and the suffering um, that, you know, that can go on when you're trying to do something different or you're trying to really, really push yourself to do something that's, that's great. And it's, a, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. Uh, if you're, if anyone is interested in, in theater, in acting, especially, um, and, uh, you know, I mean, it touches so many different things, but it's a fantastic read. It's, uh, even though it's super highbrow, it's also very, very accessible. Yeah. And, and I just think that like, you know, there's that old expression that like everyone aspires to go back to their mother's womb. And like, I personally aspire to be back in like a tiny theater that's all black working with actors. That's, you know, communicating in that way. You know, you don't just get into it because you want to make things that are interesting. You want to have a human experience. And this book brings that uh brings that history to the fore um so thank you isaac thank uh, you isaac this was awesome awesome uh diehard oab on twitter i'm liam g billingham on twitter you can email questions to us diehardoab at gmail.com we will put a link to the book in as to this book the method as well as to his other book oh, the world only spins forward an oral history of angels in america in the notes for the show um so you can pick up a coffee Pick up a copy and a coffee. You should get a coffee and then get a copy and then read the book. Phil, um, you've been tweeting a lot lately sort of about um, how much you love X.com now. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? <laughs> no, no, not really. Okay. Um, I, I, do I need to be tweeting? Tell me, like, I'd love people to engage with me and be like, what do you want me to tweet about? Because I feel like I'm, if you don't tweet and you don't do things on social media, you get lost I'm in this algorithm. This so I'm like, why bother? I'm going to put this out into the world. Phil is going to live tweet ambulance sometime this year in the year of 2024. Phil's going to live be tweet fun. ambulance. I love that. We're going to do that. Accepted. We're going to do, we're going to do an evening where we both get our 4k copies of ambulance. Yes. Out, and we're going to, we're so going to live this. tweet it. You know what we should do? We should do it in January because January is generally kind of a rough month. Yeah. And this would bring some, certainly bring some light into our lives. We, we are, the, I'm saying in here, so we, we are officially doing a live tweet of ambulance. Love it. And we'll, uh, we'll it. broadcast that everywhere. Um, next week on the show. Oh my God. We have a big one coming up on the show. Phil. Yes. Said simple pieman to the baker. Give me your pies. <laughs> Next time on the show, we're doing Die Hard with a Vengeance. Oh my God. Can you believe it? I have we're a hangover three. just thinking. The great hangover, the great hangover movie, the great New York City movie, the greatest re reveal in action movie history. I think if you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't seen the movie, how are you an hour and 30 minutes into an episode on, on Crimson Tide and, and method <laughs> acting? Uh, We'll be back next time with the brother of some FBI guys, I guess. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Peace. 
Die Hard on a Blank is a podcast created and hosted by Philip Gawthorne. Liam Billingham co-hosts and produces the show. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at DieHardOAB. Rate, review, follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Most importantly, tell your movie podcast-loving friends about Die Hard on a Blank. Special thanks to Suki Chu. See you next time on Die Hard on a Blank. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.